welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I'm the dog. With me, as always, is Mark Schmore, the duck. And uh, we've got a shorter show today, so we're going to dive right in. Mark, welcome. Good to see you. Great to be here, Warren. Well, let's get into some dog and duck news real quick. And then we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to go deeper into the college football Super League idea that you introduced last week. Talk a little bit about the NFL draft, particularly a certain team reaching potentially for a quarterback. And then if we have time, we'll break down some of the NBA MVP contenders uh, that that uh, are making a case in a historic fashion this year. So let's dive into it. In dog news, almost uh, immediately after we recorded our last episode, Husky fans got some pretty devastating news that uh, preseason potential All-American ZTF Zion Tupuola Fatui had gone down with a season-ending injury, uh, thus dashing all of the hopes of Husky fans who were hoping to see ZTF outperform uh, his counterpart on the Ducks Kayvon Thibodeau, who we talked about uh, last week as, in his mind, a potential Heisman candidate, but certainly a big hit uh, for the Huskies and uh, one that uh, we'll be tracking to see who can come along and take his place. I will say that for the most part, Duck fans have been very uh, gracious in their reaction to ZTF's injury. Uh, so kudos to Duck fans on handling that with a little bit, a modicum of class. Uh, but this Saturday marks the spring game for both the Husky football team as well as the Oregon Ducks. Uh, and it sounds like, Mark, in our pre-show conversations that there's a couple of different approaches to this spring game. So with the Huskies, uh, they're going to be they're, they're, this is a full game. This is the first time in years where we've actually had a spring game, teams playing against one another. And it sounds like that the plan is that they're going to have a draft within the team. Ooh. And they're going to split the teams up. They're going to split the coaches up. And they're going to do a game uh, on Saturday with fans in attendance. So... This will be pretty interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. Hopefully Husky fans uh, will not have any more injuries to lament after this is over. But this is this is a part of the new Jimmy Lake fingerprint yeah. that he's putting on to this, this team and this culture. Uh, so ex- exciting news if you, you know, are looking and craving for some Husky football action. You can go to the game. It's free on Saturday. And... Um, uh, looking forward to hearing reports on how that goes. How what's what's happening in the world of the Ducks with the spring game? Yeah, so the uh, I mean the biggest difference uh, is that the Oregon game will not be having fans. I believe that was just announced today, and that that was a change from what they were thinking. There's been some uh, uncertainty in Lane County where Eugene is about about the rise recent rise in COVID numbers so I guess they have made the decision not to have fans which is uh I'm sure a disappointment for people that were planning on going uh I actually um you know I was saying last week that I kind of was was concerned about some of the things that I was hearing that it kind of sounded like a little bravado coming out of the duck camp Mm -hmm. so I'm actually I'm I'm hoping that maybe uh having less attention on the spring game that maybe that inspires more of, of just kind of a thrill of the competition and not so much of a, an opportunity to kind of perform in front of fans that maybe that, that could be a, a good thing. But I, I have to tell you, just listening into what you were saying about the Husky game, that sounds, that's the type of thing that I would be want to hearing if want to hear if I was a, a Husky fan, I think back to the Pete Carroll days at USC and how mm. they were known for just insane competitiveness, their practices. And so I love the idea that Jimmy Lake is 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 really taking this seriously and giving these guys who had their season cut short a chance to to have a true game experience this spring. That sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. 
And, and talking about a draft for this particular spring game, uh, you know, the, the NFL draft is coming up this weekend. And, you know, it, when you're in the off season, it, it, there's, there's different things that you, you kind of get worked up about, you know, that you, you, it's almost like there are games within the game. Yeah. One is a, the, the, the big one is recruiting, right? right? You know, recruiting is almost like its own unique competition separate from what actually happens on the field. I think another one that's developed over the last handful of years is drafting. How many of your team's players get drafted? And so I follow um, uh, westcoastcfb.com uh, on Twitter. They, they put out a poll uh, a few days ago, a couple of days ago, and they were asking which who will produce the most NFL draft selections in the West this year? BYU, USC, Oregon, Stanford. Uh, the poll results uh, that came in, Oregon, 50% was the, the clear winner. USC, 24%. Uh, BYU, 22%. And Stanford had 4%. So essentially, most fans out there believe that this draft uh, Oregon will have more players drafted on the West Coast than the, any other team. Mark, what are you hearing in terms of numbers? Uh, if you, you are hearing anything at all, get the right partner. Now oh, I little little audio uh, snafu there, but Mark, what are you hearing in terms of numbers? Players expected to be drafted from Oregon this year. Just for the record, I was pulling up a mock draft on CBSSports.com trying to uh, to answer that very question, yeah. <laughs> and some ad began to play. But uh, yeah, so I, I I don't have a clear number in terms of the overall picks. I think I always look at the draft where I'm I'm most curious about like who from my team is going potentially on the first day or in the first round, mm -hmm. and and so you know Panay Sewell offensive lineman who sat out this last season is expecting to be a top five pick. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's, that's what I'm seeing on several mock drafts. And so for, uh, for Panay Sewell, if, uh, if he can make it into the top five uh, and be the first offensive lineman taken, then the implications for that are that, you know, this is a guy who's going to make multiple pro bowls, who's going to be a fixture on the offensive line. And, uh, and a lot of what I'm hearing is that the Bengals are the team that is probably going to be looking for that, looking to protect Joe Burrow's blind side. So, you know, as an Oregon fan, of course, uh, when the draft is done, I'll, I'll be interested to kind of tally up how many guys get drafted and kind of see where they went. But I always tend to uh, especially focus on, on who was, you know, who was the, guys going in the first round and and what kind of a long-term career might that mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, this is an interesting year for the Huskies because they've got four players who are expected to be drafted. Uh, Levi Onwazurike and Joe Tryon, who also like Panay Sewell sat out this year. Many mock drafts are, are selecting them in the first round and almost all mock drafts have them going in the first two rounds. Elijah Molden seems to be a consensus second round uh, pick uh, who did play this year. And then uh, his counterpart in the defensive backfield, Keith Taylor had a spectacular showing at the senior bowl and many expect him to go within the first four or five rounds uh, next year, but, or this, this, uh, this weekend, but, those are the only four guys who are moving on. Most of our star players have chosen to come back. And Mark, I just did a little roster review looking ahead to next year. And uh, I'm anticipating that there could be as many as 20 Washington Huskies to be drafted next year in 2022. Wow. Well, yeah. uh, that's that's Which an ambitious goal, yeah. The the current record, at least I believe on the West Coast, is fourteen. So that would be, you know, that would shatter the record. I know it is ambitious. Obviously, I'm a homer, but looking at 
the fact that we've got 18 of 22 returning starters um, coming back to the team, plus a handful of guys who are stepping into roles, you know, that Elijah and Dominique and uh, or Elijah and Keith Taylor are leaving behind. Uh, there's a lot of upperclassmen who will be draft available come next year that will have significant starting experience and uh, have the measurables, have the, the, you know, the, the foundational skills to get drafted next year. So will be an interesting thing to see how that plays out over the I next year. I would like year. to put that, you know, in our show notes for a year from now, Warren, to yeah. check that number with, with the actual, the actual record uh, 20 draft picks would be, you know, that would have to be an all-time team. I think that would have to be a team that finishes undefeated with a national title. Don't you think? Well, you know, uh, I, I actually posted that on my Twitter account and somebody said, you know, that team has no excuse to, you know, not win the PAC 12 this year. And I say, said, absolutely agree. This team, this Husky team, should win the Pac-12 this year. Whether they do, that's another story. But they've got the talent to they've got the talent to go undefeated in the Pac-12 this year, in my estimation. So I love the early season confidence. We'll see how it goes. But I, I, I like truly believe play that. for Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Now I'm not saying we're going to win the national championship. Uh, I think the the disparity between the the top of the Pac-12 and Alabama and Clemson, Ohio State, and uh, you know potentially uh, you know uh, an SEC LSU or Notre Dame is pretty big, but within the Pac-12, there's enough talent to go undefeated, in my humble uh, estimation. So yeah, that's uh, that's the 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 dog news. Mark, anything else in the duck land that we need to be aware of? No, just that uh, it's exciting to have the spring games going. Didn't have that last spring, and so it'll be it'll be fun to read up on the news over the weekend and you know hear which running back broke a sixty yarder and and uh, and which which defensive back had a couple interceptions. And the great thing about a spring game is all information like that is positive. If a running back breaks a 60 yarder it means your offense was clicking not that the defense was struggling and and vice versa if you're if your dbs get a couple interceptions it doesn't mean that the quarterback was shaky it means oh we're gonna have a great secondary this year so i i love the spring game for that reason it's all all reason for optimism i love your perspective and i see myself generally as a glass half uh full guy i think the struggle is, is that when you have like with the Huskies, I don't know how you might parse this out for the Ducks, but historically for the last seven to eight years, we've had a very strong offense and a hit or miss or a very strong defense and a hit or miss offense. So I think most Husky fans want to see the offense perform on Saturday. And, and I think the Oregon fans are genuinely the reverse that I'm more excited when I hear about the DB that picks the two passes or the, or the lineman that gets a couple sacks than I am uh, about the offense because Oregon's offense is most years pretty, uh, although this last year, not so much. So maybe, uh, maybe this particular year, I'll probably be thinking about the quarterbacks a little more intently. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's uh, move on. Last week, Mark, you introduced an idea based on what was happening in the world of professional soccer. The idea being what would happen if college football announced that it was going to be creating a super league, a yeah. league made up of, uh, what is it, 14 teams? Well, so the super league, it was, it was 12 teams originally. Okay. And then they were reaching out to three more to, to come up with 15 founding members. And then the idea is there would be a rotating five. So it would be a 20 team league essentially. Okay. Yeah. So what would that look like in the realm of college football? And you put together uh, some you know, projections on how you think that would play out. Walk us through your projections 
and then we'll 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 break that down a little bit. Yeah. So I I came to this from the perspective I I didn't try to figure out who were the first twelve, and then who are the next three, and then and then who would. So I just I just went with the idea of what would a twenty team league look like if the twenty yeah. kind of biggest football powers came together and said we just want to do our own thing. Mm-hmm. You know what what might that look like? And so what I was trying to think of is they've got to be teams with established history. Uh, they've got to be teams that uh, are, have been somewhat successful, if not recently, then at least historically. And uh, they've got to cover the country. There's got to be some geographical diversity, geographic diversity. And then uh, the final thing I thought of was I wanted to try to match each one with a rival so that when you had the last game of the season, you have a true rivalry game of sorts for each team. So uh, here are the 20 that I came up with. I'll, I'll rattle through these fairly quickly. Uh, and I know you've got the list in front of you as well. Yeah. So starting out West, I did, I did pull in four Pac-12 teams. I thought USC and UCLA make it. And I thought uh, Washington and Oregon make it. I don't think that's dog and duck show bias. I think that, that there's actually a reason to pull in those teams. Washington and Oregon have both been to a playoff recently. USC obviously is the most established program historically and then UCLA is I will say right off the top they are the least deserving team I have in my field of 20 but UCLA is a recognizable brand and they play in the Rose Bowl and I think this league would like to still have access to the Rose Bowl they're an, they're an easy rival to pair with with USC so I put UCLA in as well all right so let me let me jump in on that real quick please do so so you just covered USC UCLA Washington and Oregon. And, uh, you know, this, I just saw this come up on, uh, you know, at West Coast CFB on Twitter, AP top 25 performances over the past 40 seasons. So from 1981 to 2020. Okay. Number one. So I guess this is like, you know, number of weeks that they appeared in the top 25. So number one, USC, no surprise there, 419 weeks. Yeah. Number two, Washington, 331. So in spite of uh, the terrible decade that uh, existed, Oregon, number three at 290. And then UCLA at 277. So to your point, you selected the top four teams over the last 40 years. And really UCLA is not that different from Oregon in terms of its ability to perform in the top 25 over the last 40 years. So, yeah, I mean, so good job. Peak was really the Terry Donahue era back in the, in the eighties. Yeah, correct. So I got, the, I've got those four. If, if you start moving uh, East, uh, there's a couple Big Ten schools I've got. Obviously, you're going to have Ohio State and Michigan. Uh, Notre Dame is not attached to a conference. And so what I did is I matched them up with Penn State, mm-hmm. figuring Penn State is the other obvious Big Ten school yeah. uh, that makes it. So that's kind of from Big Ten country. Those are the teams I, I put in. That means I left out Wisconsin, left out mm-hmm. Iowa, left out Michigan State, schools like that. Uh, moving down into kind of Big 12 country, I, I renewed a rivalry here, Warren. I matched up Oklahoma and Nebraska. Nebraska is technically a Big 12 school, but in my mind, they're an original Big 8 school. Uh, mm-hmm. if, you, if you remember back in the days of the Big 8 and Oklahoma yeah. and Nebraska did have a long rivalry for many years. I, so I matched those two teams up uh, and then matched up Texas and Texas A&M. That was another rivalry that we mm-hmm. used to have. It got taken away from from realignment but a but a great end of season intrastate rivalry in Texas and then kind of moving out from there it was it was pretty much filling it in with ACC and SEC schools you have the Iron Bowl Alabama and Auburn would be an obvious choice mm-hmm. you have Georgia and Florida the largest outdoor cocktail party you have uh, Florida State and Miami uh, a great rivalry of a couple established powers and then uh, the two schools that I matched up that were not uh, really geographically connected, but I think are connected in other ways, is I put Clemson and LSU. I think it's mm-hmm. obvious that those two teams would be included. Uh, LSU doesn't really have a natural 
rival the way some schools do. Uh, Clemson is rivals with South Carolina, who doesn't deserve to be included. Both of these schools have Tigers as a mascot. They both play in stadiums that are affectionately known as Death Valley. So I thought, hey, let's create a rivalry with, with Clemson and LSU. And that's the 20 that I came up with. I left out uh, probably the biggest power that I left out is Tennessee. That's the only mm -hmm. team in the modern era, BCS era, that has won a national title that did not make it on my list. I left out Virginia Tech, which has a storied tradition, you know, left out some other schools as well. But I think if I were to take a shot at a 20-team Super League, that's that's what it would look like. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you did a great job putting that together. There's a lot of logic in there. But certainly, it definitely feels like um, leaving Tennessee off of that list is a major omission. You know, they, so I'm just looking at a little breakdown on Tennessee. 13 SEC championships tied for second with Georgia for the most in the conference. Uh, and although they have had their hits and misses over the last decade with some bad uh, coaching hires, um, you know, the, the program has won 29 FBS bowl games and uh, claims uh, six national championships, two AP titles, and have had, you know, some of the greatest players of all time, a la Peyton Manning, Reggie White. So, you know, it, it feels like, wow, how can you include a team like Oregon, you know, when you've got a team like Tennessee being left out? Again, this is why we do these shows is the fact that there's always room for debate on these kind of things. Yes, there is a, a, a sense of we don't want this to be too regionally heavy on the, the southeast side, but it feels like this is a, a, a pretty a pretty glaring um, you know a, absence from that top 20 group. And then I think the other one for me and you mentioned is Wisconsin. Yeah. I mean they, they have not been in that elite elite category but they have been consistently really, really good. They've been a consistent, they've been more consistent as a top 20 team than several of the teams on this list. Yeah. So to leave them out feels like a, you know, an omission as well. Yeah. And I think for that reason, I think if you were really trying to do this, I mean, 20 is an arbitrary number. I think 24 or 28 or something might make more sense in terms of trying to pull in right. some of those other schools with some real history. I think the thing that struck me as I was putting this together though, Warren, is that uh, on the one hand, there is something uh, that makes sense of, okay, let's remove Vanderbilt. Let's remove Wake Forest. Let's remove some of these, you know, programs that just have very little to no history and are never really competitive and just don't seem to be trying to do the same thing that a school like Tennessee is even trying to do. Uh, but what struck me is if you, if you create this league, uh, some teams are going to finish in last place, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I think we're already seeing this with the fan bases of, of a school like Nebraska, which had a, a very storied history and has gone through some hard times lately, but you know, how, uh, USC fans might look at this and say, oh, we would love to rub shoulders in this top 20 league. But after a couple three and nine seasons, USC might be realizing, oh, there's actually a reason why we have Arizona on the schedule every year, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and for a lot of these teams, you know, there's a reason why it's nice for Ohio State to play Indiana or Purdue or some team like that. It's because those are, those are guaranteed wins. And that's mm -hmm. part of why we have this power structure where we have 20 to 25 schools that really seem to, to dominate the sport is they need the other 40 schools to just kind of to prop them up. And so I, I don't think the product of a 20 team super league would actually be uh, better for all 20 of these schools. I think the schools uh, at the top of the heap would profit tremendously from it. Mm. But I think uh, the experience for a lot of these fan bases would, would be significantly worse as a result. 
Well, that's a great question. That poses uh, some philosophical questions. I'd, I'd love to know what you think. I mean, first of all, I think we all would agree that right now, the superpowers in college football are Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. And then that fourth one is kind of a little bit, it kind of cycles, it kind of cycles out. Yeah. But those three have been consistently great over the last 10 plus years. Um, Would a system like this, do you think that it would amplify that superpower? Or do you think that uh, it would actually flatten the, the curve a little bit, knowing that, hey, Alabama is probably not going to go through the season undefeated. You know, yeah. maybe a, a winning, uh, like to win in this Super League might be an eight and four season, which is maybe closer to a typical NFL type of parody than in college football now where, you know, a, a take Clemson just blows through the ACC and it's really just a matter of what are they going to do when they meet Alabama or Ohio State? Yeah. Um, do, do you think that that by uh, kind of, you know, bringing all these teams together and forcing them to play one another week after week after week, it might actually in time result in a greater parity or uh, those superpowers would just continue to, to ascend above everybody else? I would, I would assume, since we're talking about schools with relatively similar resources and, and recruiting advantages and such, uh, for the most part, I would assume it would flatten out at the top. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that you're right, I don't think you would see a lot of 12-0 and 0 seasons. I think 8-4 um, and 4 or 9-3 and 3 would feel like a really good season. Uh, I also think that the teams at the bottom would have access to better recruits than they have now. So mm-hmm. like a team like Nebraska or a team like Oregon or Washington might um, be able to uh, convince a different type of athlete to come to their school because they're in the Super League mm-hmm. uh, than, you know, than, uh, than they do right now uh, because there, there would just be, I think, especially with the way that the transfer portal has changed things, the idea of trying to be a starter on one of those teams would be paramount. And so if you're looking at like quarterbacks, I think the top 20 quarterbacks in the country would spread out. You wouldn't have three of them enrolling at, at Alabama. I think, I think they would spread out because they would all want to want to have a shot at being on the team. So there are some, some aspects of it that would be uh, compelling, but I, uh, I think in the long run, I, I don't think this would actually be a, a, a great move. Hmm. Well, you know, it's purely la la land that we're living in right now, but uh, it, it would it would be interesting to see what it would look like if a league like this was created. Maybe instead of a 12 game season, it's a 10 game season. And then there's four, six play in spots yeah. where, you know, non top 20 teams could could work themselves into a ranking where they get the opportunity to play into a tournament style, you know, that's four rounds or five rounds. And ultimately they play 15 games, but the, the tournament, you know, is kind of built into the, the schedule. Well, and, and now you're going more from La La Land to more reality, Warren, because I don't know if you saw the news, but that the college football uh, playoff committee had a meeting in the past week where they were examining they examined 63 different playoff scenarios ranging in, mm. from expanding it to six or eight teams all the way up to potentially a 16 team tournament. And, you know, the talk is, is that it, I don't know if it would be waiting until the current contract kind of runs its course that they would change or if they can get all of the parties on board and uh, under the understanding that a change would be better to implement sooner. It, it definitely seems like college football is going in the direction of expanding their playoff pool. And if they do, that will give us a lot more fodder to talk about as far as what the different uh, solutions might be for that. Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about 
I mean, just imagine if there was a 24 team Super League. We 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 throw Tennessee in there, Wisconsin, maybe an Iowa, maybe a Boise State, you know, yeah. however you want to think through that. Uh, but uh, you, you've got 24 teams in the Super League, eight play-in spots, a 32-team playoff. That would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? You know, and, and they only play 10 games in the regular season, and then maybe it's six games or, you know, however you that however that breaks five down, games, yeah. Yeah. five games in the playoff. That would be pretty fantastic, in my opinion. For sure. All right. Well, let's keep moving on. That's a that's a fun subject to consider. But as for now, it is still La La Land. Uh, but what is right around the corner beginning this weekend is the NFL draft. And the the first round will be taking place on Thursday night. Um, there's not a lot of interest locally because the Seahawks uh, have only three NFL draft picks this year. We anticipate Schneider will make some moves, uh, do some trades to expand that out. But most likely, all of our picks are going to be in late rounds, just trying to grab some some roster depth and hope that we land on a, you know, a Richard Sherman or a Camp Chancellor or something like that. So, you know, in my in my perspective, the the most interesting aspect of this NFL draft is really the way that teams are thinking about filling the quarterback position through the draft. And the one that seems to be really the most interesting out of uh, all of these is the fact that the San Francisco 49ers have uh, traded up. They traded up from their 12th spot to the number three pick with uh, switching with the Miami Dolphins and in the process, they've given up their 12th pick, a third round pick in, in this draft, and two future first round draft picks to the Miami Dolphins in exchange for pick number three. Now, at the third spot, most experts anticipate Trevor Lawrence is going to be gone. Zach Wilson appears to be the consensus pick for the number two spot. And then the third pick now belonging to the 49ers is really the big question. Most experts are saying they believe that the 49ers would not have gone to these lengths if they didn't, uh, if they didn't plan on drafting a quarterback in that spot. But the quarterbacks that really are left in that top tier are Trey, uh, Trey Lance, who uh, is coming out of North Dakota State, um, uh, Fields, um, Justin Fields from Ohio State, and then Mac Jones, the quarterback for Alabama. And many people seem to think that the pick is going to be Mac Jones. Mark, what are your thoughts about this move, this, this decision to move up? And are they seriously overreaching going after uh, one of those three quarterbacks in that third spot? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Kyle Shanahan is now essentially on record saying that they're going to draft a quarterback with the third pick, which is, uh, it's, a, it's a bold, bold move. You know, if, if you look back at previous drafts that we've had where there have been this many quarterbacks taken like uh, the draft I pulled up 1999 was the last time quarterbacks went one, two, and three in the draft. Mm -hmm. Now think about this more. And, and there were five in the top 12. So it was a very similar year to this year. Here are the five quarterbacks in order. Number one pick Tim couch, number two pick Donovan McNabb, number three pick a duck, Akili Smith. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The number 11 pick was Dante Culpepper. The number 12 pick was Cade McNown of UCLA. Yeah. Now, if we're looking at this list of five, you would say Donovan McNabb worked out really well for the Eagles. Yeah. Dante Culpepper showed himself to be a relevant NFL quarterback until injuries kind of 
um, took him down. But I mean, he was an elite quarterback for a couple of years. What Culpepper paired with Chris Carter and Randy Moss was a thing to behold. Yeah, it went to a NFC Championship game mm-hmm. one year. So uh, yeah. I believe that uh, that's who the Dolphins went all in on instead of Drew Brees when Nick Saban was their coach. That's they correct. went all in on Dante Culpepper. He got yeah. hurt, and that was that was that. But that's two of the five picks that worked out. The other three right. of those guys um, did not have any relevant or lasting impact in the NFL. And that's pretty similar. If you look at other years where there are three or four picks in the first round, there was, there was one year that, the, that was a, a complete aberration. And that was when you had Eli Manning, Philip Rivers, and Ben Roethlisberger all go within the first 11 picks. And you would say that every one of those was a home run for the team drafting them. Uh, that was 2004. But aside from that, it is it is very rare to have multiple uh, or more than two franchise quarterbacks in the first round. And so for the Niners to move all the way up and basically say that they're stuck with whatever quarterbacks are left after we pretty much know that the first two teams are drafting a quarterback, that just seems like, like a wild gamble uh, in my eyes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think um, the the greatest uh, quarterback draft of all has to be 1983, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, included John Elway, Todd Blackledge, Jim Kelly, Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and Dan Marino. I mean, yeah. imagine Dan Marino being the one, two, three, four, fifth, sixth quarterback taken yeah. in the NFL draft that year in 1983. Um, this doesn't feel like 1983. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think most experts feel like Trevor Lawrence is as sure of a thing as a quarterback as we've seen since, you know, potentially Andrew Luck. Um, but after that, you know, I'm not sold on Zach Wilson at all. I, I think the, the the level of competition that he played against last year left a lot to be desired. Justin Fields, um, you know, which Justin Fields are you going to get? Are you going to get the the one that performed spectacularly against Clemson or the one that really struggled against Northwestern? Yeah. Which, which you know, there's accuracy issues there. Uh, he recently, um, you know, revealed that he he has a, a an issue with epilepsy so what does that mean for his draft stock i don't know and then you know then you get into mac jones mac jones is one of the more interesting quarterback uh conversations because he couldn't have done anything any better this year you, as right. a quarterback right. i mean you know whatever you want your quarterback to be mac jones met or exceeded your expectations but he did it with perhaps the most talented Alabama offense that has ever existed with two of the 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 top three wide receivers in this uh draft you know all just uh Doak Walker award running back uh, all American offensive line so the question with Mac Jones is you know, is he the, 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 the straw that stirred that offense or was he just a very, very serviceable part in a finely tuned machine? It, it's a great question, Warren. And, and the other question that comes to my mind is um, it, you know, it's one thing to evaluate quarterbacks versus themselves. You know, so like mm-hmm. if, if the Niners move up and they take Mac Jones number three because they evaluate that he is better than the quarterbacks than Justin Fields and Trey Lance and any other, that he's the third best quarterback in the draft. Yeah. They could hit on that and still be wasting this pick because having the third best quarterback in the draft isn't necessarily a guarantee that you've drafted a franchise quarterback. I, I was looking back through you know, some other years, like there was the year that David Carr went number one out of Fresno state. And then my guy, Joey Harrington went number three 
from Oregon and went to the Detroit Lions. Uh, neither of those guys turned into franchise quarterbacks, but if you look at every other quarterback that was drafted, David Carr and Joey Harrington had the best careers of that draft class. Hmm. So the evaluation of the quarterbacks was right on amongst the other quarterbacks. They were like, oh, David Carr and Joey Harrington are the two best of this class. That was true, but they weren't good enough to be long-term starters in the NFL. And there's all kinds of of examples you can look at. I thought 2009 is another good example. Matthew Stafford went number one that year. He was clearly the best quarterback and has had the best career. The Jets took Mark Sanchez with the fifth pick because they needed a quarterback. Mark Sanchez, a decent NFL quarterback. We wouldn't say he's worthy of a top five pick now. He was far and away the second best quarterback in that class if you look at the rest of the guys who came after him. So I would say the Jets evaluated the quarterback position correctly, but they didn't necessarily evaluate it correctly relative to the rest of the positions on a team. And that's, I think, the tricky thing with what the Niners are trying to do is, is Mac Jones may be one of the three best quarterbacks in the draft, but that doesn't mean he's going to be one of the 20 quarter best quarterbacks in the NFL, which is what they currently have with Jimmy Garoppolo, who was, you know, a quarter away from winning a Super Bowl for them. Mm. Uh, you know, what is the guarantee that the third best quarterback in this draft is better than what Jimmy Garoppolo has already shown them? I just, I just don't get it. Right. Especially considering that Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, like the, the, the man he was drafted to back up was a late round draft pick at quarterback. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that you have to spend a King's ransom in order to, get that quarterback at the top of the draft has proven to be in many occasions a fool's errand. Now yeah. it's interesting that you you mentioned the 1999 draft class which included Couch at number one, McNabb at number two, uh, and then Akili Smith at number three. Interestingly that's also the same draft class that included the New Orleans Saints trading away eight picks including two first rounders to the Washington Redskins so that they could move up from their number 12 spot in the draft to the number five spot to select. You want to guess, Mark? Boy, so this would be a non-quarterback, 1999, with the fifth pick to the Saints. I have no idea who this is, Warren. (laughs) This is none other than... Texas Longhorn running back, Ricky Williams. Ricky Williams, there you go. Ricky Williams. And uh, if you remember, if you had a subscription to Sports Illustrated at that time. Yeah, sure. um, Ricky Williams was dressed in a a wedding dress and paired uh, with Ditka on the cover. And it was just to illustrate uh, the marriage that now existed between the two of them with Ditka going all in to get this guy. Ditka believed he was the uh, best player that had been had come out of the, the college football in years, and he had to have him. Yeah. Um, you know, Ricky Williams certainly had a respectable career, but that massive uh, ransom that took place really set back New Orleans for many years after that. Yeah, that that is a great piece of trivia. Uh, interestingly, and then he went to Miami, you know, after he started his career in New Orleans, and that's where he that's where he took off and had his best season, led the league in rushing right. for the Dolphins. But it was the Saints didn't benefit from that, you know, three years after drafting him. No, no. So it'll be interesting. I think either way, um, unless Mac Jones or whoever they draft at quarterback. Unless that quarterback becomes a perennial pro bowler, this is a, uh, a massive uh, overreach and waste of draft collateral by the San Francisco 49ers. Which, if you are a Seahawks fan, you're delighted to see. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and to be fair, the Seahawks traded away two first-round draft picks to acquire Jamal Adams, which is why they don't have one this year, which many Seahawks fans are lamenting. But uh, Jamal Adams was a proven commodity 
when they got him from the, the New York Jets. And he led the team in sacks in his first season with the Seahawks in spite of missing a couple of games due to injury. So whether or not that proves to be a, a, a worthwhile pick is still to be debated. But to take a guy who has not proven himself yet in the NFL, that's a risky proposition for John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan to, to really put their, they're putting their careers on the line with this draft. For sure. Yeah. All right, uh, Mark, we've got a limited amount of time left, but let's dive into uh, your, your thoughts on the NBA MVP uh, race. Give us a, a brief breakdown on the contenders and who you think deserves the MVP thus far. Well, I, I will be brief here, Warren, but I, I have to say that I was doing some research on this and there are about seven guys that are having seasons that in a typical year would look like an MVP season. So like, just to give you an example, LeBron James right now, his stats for the year are about 25 points, eight assists and eight rebounds a game. Uh, that has been done just 10 times in the modern era. And I say the modern era is a uh, three point era. So 1980 and on the last 40 years, mm. that's been done 10 times. Uh, three of those were other LeBron season. So LeBron is having a perfectly very good uh, season. It's become kind of a routine season for LeBron, but it's the type of season that an MVP typically has. I don't think LeBron James is going to be in the top five of the MVP balloting this year, in mm. part because he has missed some games, uh, but also in part because there are other guys that just have staggering numbers. Uh, Luka Doncic, Doncic, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but it's uh, he's averaging even better than LeBron. 28 points, eight assists, eight rebounds a game. That's only been done four times in history. Uh, Luka is going to have a hard time breaking the top five in the MVP voting. Uh, Joel Embiid is uh, flirting with 30 points and 11 rebounds a game. If he finishes the season averaging 30 points and 11 rebounds a game, He'd be just the third player in the modern era to do that, joining Carl Malone and Moses Malone, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty rarefied air for Joel Embiid. I don't even have Joel Embiid in the top three of my MVP voting right now. Um, mm -hmm. So you're getting the picture yeah. of where I'm going with this. Uh, you know, Damian Lillard is averaging 28 points and seven assists a game, and he's shooting 40% from three-point range. Larry Bird is the only player in history who has done that. Uh, that's what Damian Lillard is doing. And, and it's kind of a, a forgotten season amidst the great seasons that other players are having. So just to, to sum it up, three, three great seasons. Steph Curry is averaging 31 points, five assists, five rebounds, and he's shooting over 40% from three-point range. That combination has never been done before. We've never seen it before. Giannis Antetokounmpo is averaging 28 points, 11 rebounds, and six assists per game. That combination has never been done before. And Nikola Jokic of the, the Denver Nuggets, this would be my pick for the MVP. He's a center. He's averaging 26 points, 10 rebounds, and eight assists a game. He is a seven-foot center who's averaging eight assists a game. Mm -hmm. And his effective field goal percentage, which combines his two-point percentage and his three-point percentage into one number, is over 60%. The only other guy to post those kinds of numbers uh, over a full season was Russell Westbrook, and his field goal percentage was 47.6% over the course of a season. So Jokic is putting up numbers that we've rarely ever seen, and he's doing it in a way that is so much more efficient than we've ever seen before. Hmm. It's really, really a fun season. You've got seven or eight guys. I didn't even mention James Harden, whose numbers are ridiculous, but who quit on his team in Houston. So I yeah. I don't want to give him too much love. Uh, there are seven or eight guys that are having ridiculous seasons. It's going to be a lot of fun to see them all tangle in the playoffs because uh, there's just going to be a lot of talent on display. All right. So Mark, you make the call. Who is your MVP at this point? I'm, I'm going uh, Nikola Jokic in part because they just lost Jamal Murray, who is their second best player mm -hmm. and really their complimentary star to him. And last I checked, they had won something like eight of 11 
since Jamal Murray went down with an injury, which is exactly what you want to see from an MVP candidate closing out the season, uh, you know, trying to get Denver home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. So I give it to, to Jokic. Giannis has won it the past two seasons. Uh, and this season is every bit as good as, as the season he's had. We've seen Steph Curry win it a couple times and he's having another flamethrower of a season, but I, I give it to Jokic. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's whatever, whatever player you want to take, you've got a case to, right. to, to take them. And, you know, I think ultimately I, I would look at that and go, okay, the top five guys, in my opinion, are, you know, Jokic, Giannis, Curry. Um, uh, let's see, that's three. Uh, Embiid, and I would probably put Luca in that category. And so then I would say, okay, out of those top five, which one, you know, which team has the best record? And yeah. I would just, I would just have to go go with that. So, you know, cause essentially statistically they're all spectacular. So, yeah. you know, which team is winning the most games and at the end of the season, that's who I'm giving it to unless something dramatic changes. Yeah. Well, we can dive into that more because, uh, because next week, because there are some other storylines with teams that are winning more games, but don't have a guy on this list. And, and that's a fun, fun thing to unpack as well. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, before we do, I'll give you my 60-second update on my fantasy. Not my, I keep saying fantasy. On my flag football team, I mentioned last week that I took over as coach. This week, I came in with a playbook. I had about a dozen plays that uh, I had prepared for our team to learn, and uh, it paid off. We ended up winning our second game. 38 to six and probably the most exciting moment of the game mark you, you may remember i mentioned last week that one of the the players on the team uh, was a girl that didn't demonstrate a lot of athletic ability or uh, football prowess mm -hmm. and uh, i'm excited to share that she had her first touchdown reception Love this it. past sunday so Great, great performance by everybody. We had one, uh, one play in particular where our quarterback and the fastest kid on the team came up to me and they said, please let us go deep on one of these plays. And so we were pinned back at uh, essentially the 10 yard line. And I said, okay, you know, wide receiver, I won't say his name, but wide receiver, just run in a straight line and chuck it deep and it was a perfectly thrown ball and resulted in essentially a 90-yard touchdown which was a lot of fun to watch but uh yeah i'll keep you posted on that but Absolutely. good times out on the flag football field love to hear about it yes that's great all right thank you guys for listening be sure to like subscribe listen and share we will see you next week on the Dog and Duck Show.